Well, welcome back, everybody. It has been quite some time since our last episode was released. I think we are on episode 15. I looked it up earlier today. So check to make sure. Um, and my name is Stephanie Hicks. I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli, and this is The Corresponding Author. We are an academic data science podcast where we talk about all things kind of at the intersection of academia and data science. So today we're going to talk about a publication from Lance Waller that has been published in the American Statistician in 2018 um, titled Documenting and Evaluating Data Science Contributions in Academic Promotion in Departments of Statistics and Biostatistics. So there was actually a preprint posted on BioArchive, which I'm not quite sure why BioArchive, um, in January 2017. So you can get the, the basically the free version there, or you can look at the published version online from 2018. And John and I thought it would be interesting to discuss this because as we are um, more on the applied data science side within the world, with, I mean, sitting in a biostats department, we thought it would be interesting to discuss kind of how data science has brought new perspectives and new tools to address new questions, um, as opposed to just traditional, or as opposed to, um, I guess you could say, how we normally think about evaluating statistics and biostatistics faculty. And we wanted to think about how you document and evaluate the data science research, teaching, and service contributions for faculty members as they are interested in going through the promotion and tenure process within a stats or biostats kind of field. That's the goal for today. And so we thought we would just kind of discuss the paper. Sounds good? Yeah, it sounds great. Um, okay. I realized I didn't even ask how you're doing. It's been a while since we last chatted. Uh, I'm doing good. We're in a, we're in a new house. Uh, we moved homes. Oh, so. wow. Well, yeah, so it's an exciting. upgrade. I hope it is an upgrade. Well, and this is—we're not renting. Actually, we bought a house, so um, it was not far from where we used to live. So we actually didn't. Need, we moved like a few things with a truck and everything else. We had like rolly bins. Like it was literally on the same block. So um, that I would not recommend in the summer in Maryland. But you know, it is what it is. We did it. It's it's kind of done now. That's good. Um, but you've been well. I mean, I've seen you off and on in the pandemic during meetings that we've had uh, with like the department and things like that. Have you been well otherwise? Yeah, I've been uh, pretty well. Try uh, you know, I think uh, motivation and stand, you know, putting your nose to the grindstone is a little bit harder when you're home. And then especially right now, because walking downstairs and seeing a bunch of open tubs, I think my first instinct is to start grabbing stuff and putting it out there. So locking myself in the office is, is a good way to start. What about yourself? I think you have, you have childcare again, right? Which is a huge deal. Right. I guess that is true. Since my last episode recording, I did not have childcare, but just recently childcare has resumed for me. So I'm feeling really fortunate about that. And I'm not going to lie. It was the, the, the time at home with my kids while juggling both work and childcare and trying to just be a parent and a wife and um, um, a human <laughs> um, took, a, took its toll on me, I guess you could say. And so I'm glad to have this moment of um, ability to work 
while childcare, while I have childcare, I don't know how long it's going to last. Um, cases are back on the rise, so it's constantly in the back of my mind. But for now, we're going with it. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of data scientists out there that for sure have not gone into an office for months, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, we're explicitly being told by our our university at Johns Hopkins that if you can work from home, you should work from home. (laughs) Do not come. Yeah, which which I think is a tremendous, um, you know, it's, it's a tremendous message, but it's also really great because we have the opportunity to do that. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't, I don't see myself leaving, leaving this room for work and, and some, in some time, yeah. but yeah. And then obviously, you know, we can make, we'll probably follow up with a lot of this on another podcast, but you know, there's been a lot of, um, things going on with obviously international students and visas and then um, just police brutality and the protests going on, which I think we'll cover. Um, but I think for this one, we'll probably stick to a bit more uh, data science and academia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's save that for another episode because I have thoughts on that as well, but I don't want to get derailed and make this a two-hour podcast. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think there's there's no dearth of information out there. There's... It's not like no one's talking about any of those those issues. Right. Um, yeah. I get, so another reason I thought it would be nice to talk about this paper is because you've kind of recently gone through the, the promotion process and I am nowhere near it. I'm in the middle of my second year um, and kind of like between second and third year. And so I it's something that I constantly think about. And I had read this paper a few years back, but it had been a while since I read it. So it was a nice reminder kind of, um, of the contributions Lance and others, uh, have made towards this topic. So, okay. So we get started. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to promotion and tenure, there's like this typically a, a body of evidence that you provide to, um, to a committee, to basically to state whether or not to be evaluated, whether or not you should be promoted or tenured. And they call that the dossier, and it contains both research, teaching, and service components, right? Yeah. So you've actually done this, so you should like feel free to correct me. <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, I, I guess I'll step back for one second. So Lance uh, Waller, he's a professor at Emory, um, he's a great guy, um, heard him speak about this this before at a conference but he he was actually a chair of emory and biased that before so he That's definitely yeah. is an authority of these things and i think he's he uh emory has um some people that they've promoted and things like that so he he's been involved in the process of evaluating these people so um i will say and i think if i asked lance i would guess he would say he would consider himself definitely a card-carrying statistician not necessarily a data scientist i don't want to put words in his mouth but i think he you know it it doesn't mean um to me that you have to have someone who's like a a, a data scientist give you recommendations on this people who've gone through the process are much more knowledgeable about it i think it's great to get information from so just to put in perspective i think he's an authority on these topics that is true. And I also haven't seen anybody else like really produce like a, a piece of scholarship, essentially like a publication addressing this like directly. So, yeah, I mean, he comes out of head on saying, you know, the model is this and this is how I think some data scientists don't fit the mold, but it can in some ways. So, yeah. So um, 
we have annual reviews with our chair, as you know, and I think the discussion comes up uh, rather organically, depending if you're in a tenure track position like you are or a non-tenure track position like I am. And um, really, I think the conversations as you go to like fourth, fifth, sixth year of the position, um, really saying like, okay, like this is what I have in front of me. This is kind of like my dossier. And it's just saying like, um, what do you see? that needs to change or be added for me to go up in front of the, in front of the committee. And I think it then goes like the chair makes a decision. The chair speaks to the faculty, the faculty make a decision that goes to a body at the, the school and the school makes the decision and the Dean. And that goes to a body at the overall university um, for the most part. And then uh, it depends. It's, it's different per university depending on how committee what committees have to approve it and things like that. But I would say almost always, eventually the president is going to have to approve it for, that's definitely for tenure. And then there's promotions, which are a little bit separate, but they're highly tied together. Yeah, that's true. Um, maybe we'll get, do you want to explain that now or do you want to explain that later? Yeah, I guess like promotion really means like just going to the next uh, title, right? Usually it's, you know, associate, assistant, full um, in my case, there, it's called a scientist track, right? So assistant scientist, associate scientist, senior scientist, but for tenure track, right? Assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. Um, and then depending on your institution, tenure comes somewhere along that way in the tenure track. That is true. And for our institution, for example, the concept of tenure is not formally tied with the title of full professor. It's a separate process entirely. And it's my understanding is that it's mostly driven by your ability to demonstrate um, grants, like to be able to pro like provide funding for yourself and for your research group. Um, while promotion is more about evaluation of your scholarship, so your publications and your software, I mean, all the things that you consider your body of scholarship is separate than grants, essentially. And I mean, one could argue that those are like highly related, um, that one doesn't independently just appear without the other. But I, that this is just my understanding that like one is more about can this person and like has this person brought in a sufficient amount of funds to be able to demonstrate that they will be able to support themselves and like make contributions um, financially as opposed to just like papers. Is that your understanding? Yeah, and I think it's definitely a bit different at a hard money versus soft money institution, especially if That's you're at true. a soft money institution and you're publishing papers, you have to be funded somewhere. And um, it, they can be all, you know, you could be a co-PI or a co-I or, you know, a just collaborator on a project. Um, but usually over time, uh, depending on the department and environment, right, you're going to most likely either get or want or I wouldn't say pressured, but definitely gets nudges to get your own independent funding, especially in a tenure track position. So, um, yeah, I would definitely say in, in soft money environments, I think papers and, and grants and funding are definitely go or much more highly correlated probably at, at hard money, which I still think at hard money, it's relatively still correlated. Yeah, we should pref I mean, we should note that we're at a soft money institution. Um, so we're mostly yeah. driven or funded by grants. Okay, so key steps in the promotion process. Um, my understanding is that you should know the rules, like <laughs> like the back of your hand, that there are um, guidelines, extensive guidelines that are provided to each faculty member, and you essentially need to know the rules really, really well. 
you should have a sense of um, who's going to be evaluating you, like what field do they represent, and um, what documentation is required. So required versus expected versus allowed. So sometimes there are documents that may be allowed that are not necessarily expected. And then always, as you mentioned, be discussing this with your chair. So in these annual meetings, when you um, meet to discuss your progress in what you're working on and the contributions you've made over the past year, you should be thinking about um, trying to get a sense of, am I on track? Am I not on track? And so forth. So those are like, I think of some of the key steps. Do you think of, are there others? No, and I think if you don't have like annual reviews with the chair, like at the very minimum, especially if you're on a relatively standard six-year, 10-year track position, you definitely have an evaluation at like year three. Um, if that's not happening, then, um, I mean, that, that can sometimes not happen, especially when um, there's like interim chairs or some flux with respect to the chair, but uh, make sure, you know, you have to make sure you don't fall through the cracks, but otherwise mentors and other senior faculty should definitely be chatting with you, uh, somebody going over saying like, yeah, this looks pretty good, or hey, you might want to add this here and there, but yeah, there should be some, it shouldn't just be like, I'm going up for promotion, and this is the first time anybody talked to me. It should not be that. Right. So, I, I, I'm sure that's happened, but that's, yeah, not ideal. Um, okay, so do you want to talk about, like, the components of an OCA, or do you want me to mention them? Well, I think I want to touch back on, you know, you said know the rules. So there should be okay. almost in every institution, like, a handbook. We have, we have a PPM. It's, like, a something about protocols and something like that but it's a, it's a document that's like an official university document that spells out like this is promotion it's not the criteria is not always as well defined as you want it but it's definitely talking about the process um a bit more so there should be some document there if there's not documentation on this at all then something's gone terribly wrong i feel like yeah, uh, yeah. that is not good right um fair points okay yeah so, so some key components of the dossier one is a personal statement. So I've never written one. I mean, I've written a personal statement, but not for this yet. Um, so maybe you can talk more about that. And then a, another thing I know is a CV. So highlighting your accomplishments, your research, your teaching, your service. And then also the another major component are these external letters. So these are letters. Um, and every institution is different. So you can sometimes submit a list of names and they'll pick all from that list or they'll pick like a portion from that list or they won't pick at all. But you submit a list of names typically and um, someone in your university decides who is going to be asked to evaluate you. Uh, some, they're, th they're ideally experts in your field to be able to assess um, the scholarship and the body of work that you've contributed. And those letters play, my understanding is those letters play a major role in the evaluation of promotion and tenure, right? Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, that's a great point about the letter writers. And, and I, we've talked about this. It's um, a lot of elite and top level schools, I'd say across the board, they, it's, it's hard to really do something completely out of the box or like, you know, against the grain in some respects. And what I mean by that is they, they usually, you know, it's a, it's a vetting process that's kind of systematic throughout the entire academe, if you will. So the idea is like, you know, I've always, I've heard in many respects, the letter writers, it's the question that they are trying to answer is if this person was at your institution, would you consider promoting them and giving them 10 
tenure, which is like an interesting um, kind of stamp of approval in some respects that's like from an outside body because there's a lot of, I wouldn't say internal politics, but, you know, internal relationships and things like that. So you want something object, someone objective kind of outside of your place. And it's, it's interesting because um, with uh, scientist track, you don't have to have as many uh, external. So they can't be internal to your department, but they can be internal at your university. So um, that's definitely about the, the letter writing. Um, the personal statement, though, I think it's a good – one of the good aspects of it is it allows you to kind of talk about what you see as the five-year trajectory or like vision for the future of what you're going to do because um, – I mean, grants kind of say that, like, you're like, oh, I just started a, an R01 that's like for the next like five years. It clearly says like you're going to be doing research on that. But um, your CV doesn't really, it really encapsulates what you have done, not what you will do. But aren't you supposed to like highlight your past accomplishments in the personal mm-hmm. statement as well? Like to put it into context of like how this yeah. all fits together? Or Yeah. So also they, they ask um, to kind of, Pull out, uh, I think it was for five, five of your publications that are like, you know, um, key, you know, key publications that you'd want to highlight. And so you kind of talk about those, how they came to be, what your contribution was, why you thought this was like a impactful paper or a paper you thought was relevant. Um, so I think that was another thing that kind of really uh, showcases what you've done. Um, and like how you consider doing research and things like that. And then, yeah, I would say like a small portion, I would say maybe like a quarter of it or maybe less, maybe 20% is like this vision. Got it. I have heard about like this five-year vision or your future trajectory as being part of this, but, um, yeah. And then, so that's like the personal statement and there's like the CV. So this is like basically just establishing what the body of work is that you've done and with measures of success, right? So you want to be able to have things like how many times was this paper cited or um, how many times were you invited to speak at an international conference or an international um, university? Um courses awards 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 you've won won. teaching like do you how many courses have you taught and like what are your evaluations like um did you implement new courses or new ideas in the teaching component of your work did they work um and there's like service so things like did you participate in committees did you collaborate on projects did you mentors, students, um, all sorts of things like that. So those are things that you can like document in your CV. Like for example, if I were to win a 2020 ASA teaching in the health sciences, young investigator award, like you have, congratulations, that would be definitely something showcased on the CV. Thank Um, you, John. That was really nice. (laughs) So like, um, it's, it's interesting because when, uh, my general recommendations for CVs is like put anything and everything like remotely related to your work on there, right? Like blogs, you know, talk about tw- tweets and interactions. We're going to get and there. Like, We're going to get no, there. No, no, I know, but I'm, I'm usually ballpark. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little jumping the gun, but I'm usually like put everything in there. But this also comes very firmly um, on the know the rules um, comment that Lance makes because 
my CV is not in the standard format that the school loves. And so, so it took a lot of time and energy to put it in there, but like they were very firm and it's not a joke where they're like, you put it, these section headers have to be there. It's in this format, like no additional things like this font. I mean, I don't know if they'd be so picky about font, fonts, but they're like, this is the template, use the template. Right. And um, and I understand that, right? If you have to go through a whole bunch of these, like adding, you know, decision fatigue or adding the variability of, you know, the way the CV looks or trying to find things, right? If you can't find it. It's like so much more frustrating. So I understand why they do it. It's just, that was, I didn't maybe take the make the CV the school ready one as firmly, but I should have. So definitely when he, when I think Lance says know the rules, he, he, he means it. And abide by them. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know the rules, and then you also have to like actually do it and follow the rules. Exactly. Um, so the letters of support, I mean, I know the least about this. Like I have never written one of these. I've never asked to have one written about me yet. I mean, I've, I've asked for letters of support for grants that I've written, but I haven't actually gone through this process for promotion and tenure. Do you have thoughts on this? I mean, I can share generally what I know or what I think I understand this process is like. Yeah. The one thing I'll note, uh, letting you, you maybe discuss it is like, uh, I think Lance gives it, he calls them the arm's length person. So someone who's, so I don't think they can be a collaborator within maybe like collaborator being like a co-author on a paper or like a co-I on a grant at all, depending on your institution. Um, those are a little bit more fluid depending on your field in the sense, like if, especially if you're in some of these large genomic cons- or any consortia where, you know, some of these papers, the nature have like literally almost like, like a thousand authors. So I think something like that is a lot different than like a five person, six person author paper. Sure. And yeah. you're, you know, you're first and second. So, um, I would say in some respects, they're like almost like academic acquaintances, I would say. Um, so, but you don't necessarily need to know them, um, at least the ones you would recommend. But generally, you'd probably recommend people you know, or at least know enough about their field, but you might not know, you, you most likely probably don't know them personally. And if you have, it's more in a professional setting, like maybe see them at conference, hang out with them at conferences, things like that, but not like we wrote like three papers together. That makes sense. Yeah. So what I generally know about this process is that um, they are essential, first of all, to the the promotion and tenure process, and you need really good writers. You need people to advocate for you. So somebody who knows your, who's willing, if they don't know you really, really well, then somebody who's willing to closely read your CV and read the publications in the CV and be able to evaluate it. And so you need somebody who can write a really good letter that advocates for exactly why um, your accomplishments uh, matter and why they have impacted your field. And so there are some components to the letter. So like there's, of course, the content and that can be, for example, so-and-so has won an award, so-and-so has written X number of publications, so-and-so, which have been like cited X number of times um, and things like that. And then there's the writer itself. So who is actually writing the letter, I think is really important. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I mean, who is writing it basically translates to, is this person well-recognized in this field? And then I've been told that the letterhead matters. So like, where is this in, where is this person at right now? Like what institution they're at? Again, I, I cannot speak to this like personally, but I've just 
heard that this is the case. So uh, maybe like a listener can, can comment on this more. But the, the letters of support are really important. And I think the thing that I want to mention here is that the content of what they point to um, is has always been like traditional scholarship. And so when you think about data science, their data science brings in non-traditional forms of scholarship. And the I think the point that Lance is getting at here is if, for example, letters of support are so important or if like the content in a CV is so important and there are all these like non-traditional forms of scholarship that data scientists work on and make contributions to in the field of data science in academia, then we have to figure out how to make that valued and make that appreciated to the people who, uh, for the people who are writing these letters when they give them to the committees. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And also like the committee is made up of like professors in all of the departments, anthropology, right. math, oh, yeah. engineering, English, <laughs> right, all over the place. So um, really trying to conceptualize some of these things that are definitely out of some of these people's wheelhouses. Um, and I think Lance touches on this, that like especially computer science and engineering, like conference papers are a big thing, stats, it's, it's much more journal uh, publications, and then like biology, it's you know, very, still very tied to those one letter journal or one, um, one word journals and things like that, like nature, science, cell. But, I, um, but yeah, but the, but you were saying the authors, it's, it's kind of them describing or the letter writers saying, you know, what did this person do? And I think the other restriction, I don't think we said is that I believe they have to be at or above the position, the, oh, right. the rank, That's, the rank that, that you're going yeah. for. I've heard that. Too. So like if you're an assistant professor and you got a great relationship with someone, but they're still an assistant professor, uh, I don't believe they can write a letter. Um, it, they would have to uh, be an associate or above. But when you, you listed out like computer science, biology, I'm forgetting the other department you mentioned, but like those departments have been established for a long time compared to data science. And so there are these data scientists who are kind of in a biology department or in a computer science department, and we're talking about specifically stats and biostats right now. And I think that the challenge is how do you take these out of the box um, metrics of success and like package them in a way that is uh, understandable to this committee who could potentially be quite broad, who might really not know much about um, A, your field, but then like also about data science because data science is still kind of evolving quite a bit, I would argue, um, as we go along. I mean, it's only been around for like the last 10, 15 years, arguably. Um, so I think yeah, I think I, discussing this with your chair is like really important aspect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think like we've had an internal discussion in our department about editorializing your CV. Um, and I mean that in the sense that, um, well, uh, that like sometimes uh, certain people at least recommend that you put some sort of e extraneous context to like maybe a publication. So for example, I published in an IEEE um, conference, which for engineering and, and IEEE people, that is that is like writing a paper. And, and you know, when you submit to some conference, you might have to submit like a, a half page of proposal. This is this was like a seven to eight page fully cited and, and reviewed, peer reviewed um, article, right? So it, it's very different. But I'm just saying that there, I've gotten two different schools of thoughts on this, that the CV is just like, just the facts. 
you know, straight up and no kind of what I would call editorializing or, or, or reframing it. But like some, some I've heard to say, like, if you're doing like, let's say conference proceedings and that your department or um, your school doesn't really see that as like a journal, maybe like saying like, this is, this is, you know, putting that in context in the citation. Um, so that can be, that can be quite hard because I think a lot of, a lot of the promotion and tenure process to me, it seems like very much like the Supreme Court with like precedents, right? So it's like, well, we want to promote this person. It's like, well, what are you going to do to like think of evidence of that? It's like, let's look at the last like five people or five other people that like look like this person. And that's relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but it's straightforward if you do a quote unquote traditional academic position. Mm -hmm. And whereas academic data scientists, it's like, you're doing stuff in this sphere over here to the left or the right. And, you know, if you think of a K nearest neighbors or something like that, you're, you're a little, your, your distance is a little bit bigger. Right. That's true. Um, and so, uh, so just to finish that, I think that there's two ways to go about this, in my opinion, it's either, you know, I think, I think he even writes in the, in the paper, damn the torpedoes, where it's just blowing everything up, where it's like, I'm going to put stuff in there that's like, I do software, here's a bunch of software packages, um, I, I'm not, public, you know, it's on GitHub, all this kind of stuff, or really, the long, the way I think is probably going to be the most beneficial to a lot of people is try to shoehorn some of your stuff into some of those sections that people are looking at. If you're going to publish software, see if you can publish a paper with it, right? Um, that like you get a citation or a, a journal entry for software. Yeah, I call this like the shoehorn approach, like essentially taking non-forms of scholarship and like shoehorning it into <laughs> a traditional academic uh, form of scholarship somehow, some way, which yeah. I'm not saying is like ideal, but it's one approach. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, yeah. So, and I think it's the nature of the beast right now. Yeah, but I mean, like, when papers like this come out, it makes me think that chairs and deans are, I mean, I hope that they're reading this and they're thinking, oh, we got to think outside the box. Like, um, okay, so let me give you an example. So traditional form of scholarship are publications, like peer-reviewed, citable publications. And what, do you, what are people thinking when they evaluate this? One, authorship. So every field is different in terms of like how people order authors or like the number of authors and things like that. But essentially, authorship is important. <laughs> and then, of course, the journal. So like the quality of the journal and then like the quality of the paper. Those are things that you can point to in the evaluation of um, like of your writing. But then there are there are new forms of writing, like you mentioned blogs, or if you are super active on social media, or um, are you, for example, doing making like other types of um, are you doing other types of writing? So, for example, I write a lot of. I help contribute to like some online books for the analysis of genomic data, for example. And there's it's citable, um, but it's not necessarily like always tied to a publication, but it's it's widely used. Or um, if I am writing some software, there's like this difference between citations and downloads. So like I wrote a piece of software that has like, I don't know, maybe 50 citations. It's not super well cited. It has, it's in a journal publication that's incredibly well respected, 
but then it's da- it's been downloaded like almost 15 or 20,000 times in like the last five or 10 years. And so that tells me that people are using it. <laughs> so downloads, check. Citations, not so much. And I think, I mean, like when you go to look at the software, the citation is right there. But are people always putting it in their paper? I don't know. I mean, like when people make plots with ggplot, for example, like I assume that we are supposed to state and cite like the ggplot paper. I mean, like we're supposed to cite that. I do that. But I do I know, does everybody do that? Does everybody do that? I, I don't know that. So, I mean, it's for sure widely used and widely downloaded. But I don't know the numbers off the top of my head about citations. Um, it's probably yeah, widely cited. That one's probably widely cited. But it's widely cited, or like like dplyr, right? Manipulations. It, that's an interesting. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people don't cite. Like I, I mean, it's hard for like, especially when journals put restrictions on references and things like that. It's like okay, so in in, in the steps of a data analysis, you know, what do you what is the bar, right? If you use one function. One, let's say you want one function from a, a, a package. Is that enough? And I think it depends. Like some people are like, oh, does that do like a super sophisticated, interesting model that like you couldn't have done otherwise? Like, yeah. But like, you know, dplyr I think is one of the most transformative tools. And it's like, oh, well, that some people think like that's just data manipulation. It's just like, yeah, but like without it, either the project wouldn't have gotten done or would have taken a lot more work. And so... I, I mean, I will say it should be cited, but at the end of the day, I'm I'm probably just as bad as everybody else. It's, it's hard to, to map out all the packages and software that you've really used. Um, and it, it, it's interesting because I wonder what someone from the bio, biology field kind of considers because like they cite, they are a field that cites methods in the method section right, rather heavily. Like we use the technique of someone at all to like prep ourselves and things like that or like prep the 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 animals and it's just interesting because not that many some other fields don't do that the citation really come at the intro and like that kind of stuff and that doesn't really fit for software that's true yeah it doesn't really fit at all and also like where you put all this together i think is important so like lance talks about how when you list your publications one tip is to put the software right there next to it so like in parentheses say software available on bioconductor software available on python or uh, as a python library mm-hmm. and then have a separate section for just the software for example and then having that as like its own form of publication so like does it have a doi can i actually like cite the github repo is it like on zenodo which allows you to have like a citable um like github repo versionized a version to github repo um i mean of course software is dynamic like it's changing but then you can like for reproducibility versions you can just make it uh, versionized and so and, and they're like also pub the journals that are accepting software as like kind of its own form of scholarship, like as opposed to um, I'm answering this like question and I built this software along with it. Like you can just actually publish the software itself and kind of like demonstrate its use cases and benchmark it compared to others and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I think Lance gives like three different ways and you, you touch on that to kind of showcase software one of them was like putting along with the uh, papers uh, and then the one was make its own section, which is what I tend to do 
because I think a lot of mine don't necessarily fit into some of these papers. And then the third, the third, which I think he's, he puts in between those two is mention it, um, in the oh, yeah. personal statement and near the citation, which I think you can still do that with, with either way you put it on your CV. But um, I think the takeout message is, you know, let's let's be very frank here. People like numbers. And I think um, people might deny this, but I, I personally think they want you to number the number of citations and they look at the look at the max number there, right? That max number is, I wouldn't say the end all be all, but like one to N and they look at what N is and they look and I would say bold your name in the author order because the second thing they're looking for is first author and last author publications or co-first author, co-last author, again, depending on field. But like we can we can say if we don't like that or not, but like at the, I think the, the truth of it is people are doing that. People are, those are, people are looking at those things. Um, and so with software, I think when you're trying to talk about reach and usability, putting downloads in there is important, even though I have, I've gotten like when that was applying for positions like a couple of years ago, I definitely like showcased them in a presentation and a professor asked me pretty much like, couldn't you, you're a programmer, couldn't you just download that like a hundred thousand times? And I was like, yeah, I probably could. Um, but, um, I, so, so that being said, you should try to get as best, right? We're statisticians, we're data scientists. You don't want to be presenting bad numbers. You want to get the best estimate you can of the real impact of your work. Um, and I mean that in the sense, like we use like continuous integration services and CRAN and all this type of stuff where it might download that package. So I try very hard to exclude any instances if I can of like, this is my download count. Um, but if I have the ability to exclude downloads that seem like, oh, this is like a version checking and stuff like that, I try to do that. So I think numbers are important because they give people an idea of the impact. But as a data scientist, you should try to give your best you know, best estimate of the true impact of that because no one likes to feel like they're the fleece, the uh, they're getting fleeced or the wool is getting pulled over their eyes with some numbers or citations or some, or overreach. I, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, like, I get what, what you're saying. I think the, the point that Lance is making is that recognition of software kind of like as its own form of publication is what has been lacking. So, I mean, my understanding yeah. is that, like, these conversations probably happened, you know, a year or two before the paper came out. So, like, circa 2014, 2015, there were conversations going on in departments in which they had these data scientists in their departments and they're like, how do we get them through promotion and tenure? Yeah. They're clearly making an impact, but we have to figure out like how to get them through this process. They're doing things that are really cool that are having a big impact, but how do we get this? I mean, either the shoehorn approach or getting people to change like what they think is like scholarship for data science, for example, entirely. So his point is, um, let's talk about the traditional like, process for this and then let's talk about these new things that are appearing that data scientists and academia and academics or academic departments are contributing another example would be data so in addition to just like software data scientists are often um, making data sets or uh, making data sets easily uh, readily available to be analyzed they are um, analyzing data i mean so there are all these other forms of scholarship that I think traditionally just hasn't really arisen since like data has become so 
uh, readily available and accessible. So like there are these large data banks uh, and data sets that people are using. And statisticians historically, and biostatisticians historically, have not really enjoyed the process of taking like a data set in its raw form and like getting it to a point where it's in a clean tabular form that's like wrangled and ready to go. We typically we've been tr- we've always um, like in the classroom we're always taught to use like starting with clean data. This is how we're going to implement this model. This is how we're going to estimate this uh, parameter and so forth. And so data scientists play a huge role <laughs> in like yeah. making that happen. And I mean, I, as you know, you know, analyzing data, it's like 90% of it is like cleaning it. <laughs> yeah. And so that needs to be valued. And I, I think Lance's point is that how can we make this um, such that people who are evaluating these people or these individuals recognize the enormity and the importance of the scholarship? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I think data sets, it, it's, it's a, that's, that's, that's something I at least think a lot of people do cite, which is on the positive note of that. So if you do like release a data set, usually have a, a, a number of, you know, citations there, but I, I think it's, it's hard because like you can clean, I remember we had, we had a, we had a student and, and she cleaned like her thesis data for like almost a year to get it up ready to where it needed to be published. But like that data was like super, super sensitive and couldn't be released because it was like salaries of faculty and stuff like that. And so it's just, it's interesting because I don't even know if she could publish the results, but either way, let's say, let's assume she could have, but like the data was never going to be released. So it's, it's very hard because that's a lot of time and energy and it's straight research. That is research. It it kind of falls through the cracks, but I think to what I'm thinking about software and, social media or blogs or something. I mean, I think the thing is, at least we assume, I think there's two things going on. I think personally, I assume that there's still a lot of people on that committee that don't understand some of that stuff at all. No, that's a fact. That's a fact. And then the other thing is, I think it might be an optimistic (laughs) thought that we think things are changing. I I hope. Yeah, I have to have hope that things are changing. (laughs) But... But what's weird to me is like we've had this like people have had this discussion for almost a decade now, and I actually don't know if anyone has any idea on how to measure if it is changing. Um, but that being said, I think to try to encapsulate it in terms of other people, like numbers help. Like, oh, that's like ten thousand downloads. Is like, is that ten thousand people? If you have unique users, that's always the better. And this comes to like, um, which we'll talk about with teaching, like massive MOOCs, right? Massive online courses and things like that. And I think if you can start putting numbers to those things, people, it's, they might not appreciate it, but at least it says like, oh, 10,000 people, you taught 10,000 people. And if they say, ah, it's, it's quote unquote only online, which I think that is going to be a very different perception after (laughs) this, um, all these online teachings in the fall and all the online teaching going on, but it's just, you give them the numbers and more information that kind of encapsulates the impact rather than just like, I did a class online, right? For right. These types of you put things. it in context, I think is yeah. the phrase that Lance uses. Um, so I think getting back to your point of the, the people who are evaluating you, like on your committee at your university, at least in our school, for example, there is at least one person from every department on the um, a, appointments and uh, promotions committee. 
to the, the mm-hmm. A&P committee. And say, for example, I go up for promotion and I cite all of, I like, what did you call it? The torpedo approach where you like, you just damn like, the torpedoes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you just like go for it and you like list all the software, software with like GitHub repos and everything. There should be somebody on that committee who can interpret, who can say, so Stephanie's in my department. Let me try to like translate <laughs> what, uh, what is in her personal statement or CV to something that you could understand. So I think that there is some of that going on. At least I feel like that in, in our department, that the people who are on those committees represent our, all of our voices or can represent our voices, which we are very, very diverse department and in, in our interests, our research interests. Yeah. No, th- there should be someone on there, but I think I think the rebuttal to that is if someone's like, okay, let me reframe it on, on like how it makes sense to you. I think somebody internally is going to be like, why didn't they do that already? Yeah, right? why didn't they? That's fair. That's fair. I should have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but they can showcase certain things. So I think the 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 main right. What is the main crux of like journal and publications is like it's peer reviewed. Someone independently who had either didn't have a vested interest or actually sometimes has a vested interest for you not to publish this, um, looked at it and said, yeah, that's that science looks okay. Um, and I think that's what uh, is really hard for people to think about social media and blogs and like opinion pieces and things like that. But I think there's a couple things to kind of note there, in my opinion. Like if we're talking about dissemination, um, Twitter and blogs and that kind of stuff, like people read that stuff. Some people, not everybody. Some people, some people, that's true. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, kind of, it's, it's hard because it's always been hard for me because like a blog is like one line you know, it's, it's actually a blog is more, more akin to a journal than a, than a, than a single publication. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. Like a post, a post is like a publication sometimes. And, but like some people write a paragraph or a page and like that's a post. Some people write like detailed 10 page posts and it's really hard to tease those out. So I think blog kind of gets lumped together in a one big amorphous blob, if you will. And it's, it's hard to tease that out. So if you can re if you can reframe it in any way saying like posts are average length, this or number of reads per thing, or like maybe some metrics on that, it might give more information, but I don't know. That is true. Um, thinking back to the, like the data example, mm-hmm. so some things that I think are useful tips are asked to cite, not only like the publication that, that where the data were used, but then also like, make a repository with like a readme file um, and kind of like a versioned repository for the data set. And then you can actually cite the data uh, set itself. So thinking about citations for both, um, if it has like a DOI. So. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I, 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 as a gut reaction, I still think there is probably some people in, in the field that think that's like, cheating almost or like double citing or like you're getting two papers out of one kind of thing but i don't think that way at all and i think i would guess for many of those who have that had had that thought they have not put together a full data set for like release because that is not just oh i'm done now here's the data it's very much not yeah Uh, i Everybody uses, I mean, data so differently. (laughs) 
Yeah, so maybe maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll have to have a part two of this. I think this is a, a good maybe a good place to end. We kind of have the right. CV kind of hammered out. Um, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll yeah we'll bring someone on who, who might have some more. Uh, maybe we'll ask ask somebody to join us who who's, who's who can have another perception from the more senior side. Yeah. Okay. So maybe next we'll also talk about teaching, and then in the next episode, kind of like how people document these new courses that are being developed to teach data science, um, and maybe like just documentation in general. And then maybe we can have like an expert on it who's actually maybe written a few of these letters to help us. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Stay safe out there. We'll see you soon. Bye. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at correspond auth or my handle is strictly stat and stephanie's is stephanie hicks and you can email us at the corresponding author at gmail.com this episode was edited by jessica crowell and special thanks to the data science lab for their help and support